Good morning. Um, it is good to see all of you again. It has been some time. Uh, I think I was here super briefly at Thanksgiving last year, um, and then I was gone again. So uh, it is good to be with all of you again. What a blessing it is uh, to be with you. Uh, honestly, there is a connection to a home-sending church that no other church has. Uh, and as I was dwelling on what do I preach, how do I show my joy and thankfulness, how do I show my prayers for you, uh, what is the best way to do that? I came to Philippians chapter 1, um, and I don't know, this passage is one of the most blessed passages when it comes to answering the question, uh, what's the best way to express gratefulness or express the amount of happiness and joy that's been instilled in me by the kindness, thoughtfulness, and generos- generosity of others? And this passage instructs us by showing how Paul expresses himself to the body of Christ at Philippi. So if you haven't already, please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to go ahead and read the first 11 verses together, uh, and then we will uh, move forward. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always, in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that it teaches us that through your spirit, you guide us into truth. I pray, Father, this morning as we look into these verses that the word of the Lord would be rightly divided. I pray, Father, that by your spirit, you administer to our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage kind of divides itself easily, I think, uh, into three main divisions. You have Paul's introduction in the first two verses. You have uh, Paul's gratefulness in verses 3 through 8. And you have Paul's prayer for the church in verses 9 through 11. Uh, And as we work through these verses, I want you guys to keep in mind, um, we're answering the question, 
What is the best way to express our thankfulness and gratefulness toward one another? Let's take a look at how Paul does it. Let's begin in his introduction, verses 1 and 2. Notice how he begins with humility. What does he call himself in Timothy? Well, in the ESV, it uses the word servants. Uh, but the, the, the word that's used there in the Greek, I believe, uh, some of you who have taken Greek might be familiar with the word doulos, uh, but it is the word for bond servant. Uh, this is an interesting way for Paul to begin his letter to the Philippians. The reason for uh, that is because he usually begins his letter by calling himself an apostle uh, to the church. Um, We're used to Paul, who is an authority figure, addressing himself as an authority figure, yet here Paul chooses to address this church differently. He begins in humility. A bond servant is something that was instituted back in the giving of the law at the foot of Mount Sinai. Uh, And if you guys want to go look at it afterwards, go look up Exodus 21, go look up Deuteronomy 15. Uh, But in there you find that the law provided... For slaves under circumstances and required them to be treated well, most importantly, they were required to be set free after serving six years. And now the free man, not a servant, for whatever reason, could bind himself to the master forever. He would be then considered a bondservant. And you guys, uh, if you go look up the text, you'll see uh, what happened was the servant would say, I want to bind myself to my master, and the reason given in both passages is always because I love my master. And they go take him to the doorpost with his ear, and they pierce it through with an awl, and he's marked a bond servant forever. The picture for Paul is that he willingly has bound himself to the ultimate master. He is not his own. He does not serve his own interests, but only the interests of his master, his Messiah, Christ Jesus. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, bound for life. Notice who he addresses uh, in verse 1. He says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. (laughs) This is funny also, because... He addresses his audience as they are, saints and leader saints, but it's still unique because he usually doesn't single out church leadership at the beginning. He'll say to all those at uh, Ephesus, grace and peace, right? Uh, But here he says, to all the saints in Christ at Philippi, but also the leaders. He normally addresses the church as a whole. Here he mentions pastors who minister to the spiritual needs of the body and deacons who minister to the physical needs of the body. There's something more personal, I'm arguing, in this address to the Philippian church than in uh, the other epistles that he writes. He calls himself a bondservant. He addresses his audience Uh, not just as a whole, but he partitions them a little bit. Saints, overseers, and deacons. And then, of course, he extends God's blessings to them in verse 2. Here we read the most common part of Paul's greetings, bestowing to them God's grace and peace. We're familiar with the blessedness of the good news, the gospel that manifests God's unprompted, undeserved favor and blessing to us. 
and offers us peace with God, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God's grace is indeed the turning away of God's wrath, establishing union rather than separation with God, Jesus' work on the cross completing this for us, his saints. If indeed we have tasted the grace of the gospel and have believed in the person and work of the Son of God, Jesus. That's Paul's introduction. What's next? Paul's gratefulness. Here he begins to express himself to this church in a very personal way. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, verse 3. These verses uh, pointedly depict that participation in the gospel breeds rich fellowship. I'm just going to read a few of these, three, four, uh, well, I'll just read three through eight again. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, we'll get into this in a minute, but... Because we need to define terms, I want to point out that we see in verses 5 and 7 that their participation in the gospel wasn't simply that they were born again. In other words, Paul isn't saying here that his thankfulness, joy, and longing for them is simply because they were saved. That is not what participation in the gospel means here. More on that in just a minute. But first, observe Paul's emotions toward them. One, Paul was filled with joy and thankfulness. Look at verses three and four. Paul's prayers are filled with thankfulness and joy. And look at all the superlatives he uses. Always, all my remembrance, in all my prayers, for all of you, this joy and thankfulness toward the Philippians wasn't fleeting and it wasn't toward one person or two people. It was all of them, all the time, every time. This joy and thankfulness was not fleeting, it was abundant and occurred again and again. Paul holds them in his heart, is a description he uses in verse 7. I believe this is the only time in scripture that Paul uses this type of language. Apart from his close relationship with Timothy, uh, who we know of as his son in the faith, And knowing the dear relationship with the church he had at Ephesus, that's where he spent most of his time at a church in uh, in his time as as an apostle, this is as heartfelt and as raw as we ever see Paul get in his writings. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. Paul's connection with this body was uniquely deep. Look in verse 8. Paul loves them with Jesus' love. So we're looking at Paul's emotions towards them here. Thirdly, uh, so one, he's filled with joy and thankfulness. Two, he holds them in his heart. Uh, The third description and final description Paul gives them is that he loves them with Jesus' love. The pinnacle of the description that Paul can give of his love 
for them is by stating that God alone knows the depth of it. God is my witness, he says, how I yearn for you with the affection of Christ. He loves them with the same affection that Christ has for them. And this is truly, think about it with me, this affection is the truest, richest, highest, purest love that anyone can have. A love that we as finite humans actually have a hard time grasping. A love that Paul often mentions uh, in his epistles, but more specifically in Ephesians 3, that it's incomprehensible. Why don't we turn there quickly? If you're in an ESV thin line, you just have to turn one page back. But if you go to Ephesians chapter 3, notice how Paul talks to the Ephesians about this love that Christ has for them. He prays for them to comprehend it. Verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Why? Verse 16, That according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Why? So that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ. By the way, that surpasses knowledge. To know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul is telling the Philippian church here, he yearns for them with the same affection that Christ yearns for them. Paul loves the Philippian church with this kind of love. So this is an interesting way for Paul to address the Philippian church. Why does Paul have this affection toward them? Well, let's look at the why. Verses 5 and 7. They participated with Paul in ministry. There was an investment from the Philippian church into the life and ministry of Paul. He calls it a partnership in the gospel from the very first day until now. Uh, And I might add, (laughs) I was attracted to this passage because Calvary Baptist Church has participated in the gospel with me from the first day until now. Paul states here that specifically they were partakers of the grace, uh, he describes it for us in verse 7, partakers of the grace of his imprisonment, partakers of the grace of the defense of the gospel, partakers of the grace of the confirmation of the gospel. What do these involvements describe for us? What does it mean that they were with him participating in the grace of his imprisonment? Well, this simply means that they chose to suffer with Paul in his imprisonment. We find that the Philippians interacted with Paul quite a bit while he was in prison. Go read through Philippians. He brings it up again and again. There was a deliberate and heartfelt desire from the Philippian church to bear Paul's burden with him. That worked itself out, not just in desire, but in action toward Paul. They showed this in provisions sent to Paul, communication back and forth through men like Epaphroditus, we find out later, and prayers lifted in earnest to the Father on behalf of Paul. They partnered with him in his imprisonment. What does it mean that they participated with him in the defense of the gospel? Well, beyond partaking in Paul's imprisonment, they stood resolute in a scary word, apologetics, right? 
They participated in the grace of the defense of the gospel. They were firm in their defense of both the reality of the gospel, it's true, and in the preaching of the gospel, we will speak it. Paul is one of the apostles that had to defend the truth of the gospel over and over and over again. And it wasn't just in the street as he was witnessing. It wasn't just in the synagogue as he was teaching, but it was before the courts of men and rulers. How many times did Paul stand in a courtroom and say, this is the truth of the gospel. I stand here because of... Philippi partnered with Paul in the grace of this defense, relentlessly testifying to what the truth is. And I might add that one of the starkest defenses of the gospel is the repeated, consistent teaching of it. What was Paul's defense of the gospel in the courtroom? Archaeology evidence, that can be helpful, but he didn't go into that. What was Paul's defense of the gospel largely? He would stand in the courtroom and say things like, I'm here because the resurrection is true. I'm here, Jesus was crucified by lawless hands. I'm here to witness the truth to you. Some of us are afraid, myself included, to defend the faith because we consider ourselves not learned or knowledgeable enough to get into apologetics. Brothers and sisters, that's not the right way to think. How many times are we told in the Gospels that the disciples were unlearned men? Yet, when they spoke the truth of the Gospel, people marveled and said, Ah, they've been with Jesus. They marveled that such unlearned men could speak such truth. Take encouragement from this. You too have been with Christ. Speak the truth boldly. Stand in the defense of the Gospel. Number three, we have, they participated in his imprisonment. They participated in the defense of the gospel. We can see thirdly that they participated in the confirmation of the gospel. The final way that the Philippians participated with Paul, the partnership of the gospel, was its confirmation. What is meant by this? Well, when you confirm something, you verify that it really is the case, right? Uh, work with me here on an illustration. If you fall and you break your ankle, you believe it's broken. But there are several other people who say, nah, you just sprained it, man, right? Well, it's only after the evidence is produced through the x-ray that it's confirmed that your ankle is broken. The truth is, your ankle is broken, and here's the proof. In the same way, the church at Philippi confirmed the gospel, Confirmation is a word that is tied to testimony and character of life. It's a fancy way of saying that their lives confirmed that the gospel is true. Their lives proved the efficacy of the gospel. What they spoke with their mouths, they lived out with their lives. They were a changed people. The gospel accomplished what the gospel said it would accomplish. They were saved from their sin separated from the deeds of darkness, and they now walked in the light. The fruit of the Spirit was evident. They participated with Paul in the grace of the confirmation of the gospel in their lives. Now, you'll notice I skipped a verse. What's between five and seven? Well, verse six, right? (laughs) 
It's one of the more well-known verses in Philippians and in the Bible, I think. Uh, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And here's where we get to some really good theology. And I love theology. God has saved this Philippian church and is separating them unto himself in this work of sanctification. This God who has done that, Paul says, I am sure of this. He who began this work in you will complete it. Your salvation, my salvation, will be completed. Oh, the blessedness of this truth. Notice Paul even tells us when. When is this going to happen? Is it when we die? No. While Paul argues in another place that this certainly is wonderful since we'll be with Christ, the answer is no. Is it when we finally grasp that particular theological truth we've never understood before? Yes, I get it. While certainly good, uh, and owing to the Holy Spirit inside of us that we would understand more about God through his word, the answer is still no. This good work of salvation and sanctification is only completed at the day of Jesus Christ. This, of course, is referencing the resurrection of the saints and the taking of the throne of David, two things we know Jesus accomplishes as it's laid out for us in the scripture and how we long for that day. So I'll encourage you in the middle of this emotional gushing that Paul gives to the Philippian church, your salvation will be completed. Notice how Paul moves immediately into application. He doesn't even take a breath. He says in verse 9, and it is my prayer. Paul digs into application here for us. How does all of this love, how does all of this grace How does all of this gospel participation that has been shown back and forth between the Philippian church and Paul, how does this end? What is its point? Well, Paul ends it in a plea for growth. Three quick things he mentions. Paul pleads for them to abound in love, to grow in godliness, and to glorify the Father. Let's read verses 9, 10, and 11. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Wait a minute. Paul just got done gushing about the love and the joy that they shared with him. But Paul's desire is that they wouldn't be content with where they were in their love. He boldly tells them that he's praying that their love would grow bigger than it already is, that their love would become not just abounding, but overabounding, that your love may abound more and more, that their love would be exercised, if I can use a fancy word, that their love would be exercised in superfluous ways. Notice how he brackets their love, though. He says with something, that your love may abound with knowledge and all discernment. In other words, it's not a love that isn't blind or emotional, purely. Rather, it is reasoned, careful, and deliberate. This love is shown with knowledge and discernment. It's a wise love. 
Paul desires that they would become more Christ-like, both in showing more love, they would abound in it, but also in showing wise love. What's the second thing he prays that they would grow in? Well, godliness. And godliness isn't mentioned here, it's just a summary word I used uh, to break down this description he gives us. He gives us three phrases. He wants them to abound in love more and more with knowledge and discernment so that they may approve what is excellent, be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, and be filled with the fruit of righteousness. I've summarized those three statements by saying he's calling them to more godliness. What do these phrases mean? Well, approve what is excellent, right? We love defining terms. What does approve mean? Well, when you approve of something, you agree or accept it. Your kid says, can I go outside, Dad? And you approve his request and say, yes, go outside. What is excellent? Well, extremely good or outstanding. It's not something that's just good. It's not something that's great, but it's excellent. The person of the highest character, not just good or decent character, or the steak that's Brazilian chuhasku, not Texas Roadhouse, right? <laughs> the best of the best. It's the thing that is to the extreme on the good side. Excellence. Approve what is excellence. Or what is excellent. What is the next phrase? That you might be pure and blameless. Well, these are scary words for us. We just got done observing the Lord's table, right? Where we confessed, Lord, we are sinful. You are our Savior, right? Well, what does Paul mean here with pure and blameless? That you might be pure and blameless. Well, simply, that you might be without sin in your mind and in your activity. Pure, carrying the idea of an active state of righteousness, and blameless, the sense of no sin on their account. And then he phrases, be filled with righteous fruit. And I love Paul's food metaphors. He uses them periodically. In Galatians 5, Paul calls it what? The fruit of the Spirit, right? Here, he makes clear that this righteous fruit they're to be filled with, and by the way, it is a food metaphor. How does he use it? Be filled with the fruit of righteousness. You've eaten it. It's in you. It's in your belly. Be filled with the fruit of righteousness. It's only ever available through Jesus Christ, verse 11. Be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Eat it. Fill your belly with Christ's righteousness. So, we have here Paul saying these things in summary. I am praying that you may abound in wise love, that you may grow in godliness, and finally, that we might glorify and praise God, the last phrase of verse 11. Don't you love how everything always revolves around the glory and praise of God? I find it fascinating. It doesn't matter what Paul talks about. The ultimate end of everything will always be God's glory. Even this plea to call Philippi to wise love, to call them to be holy and blameless, that's not the point of his call. God receiving glory for the work done in them is the end. So I will close with this. 
I picked this passage because I wanted to communicate to each of you the blessing you have all been in my life over these last several years. The encouragement you've been, the joy and thankfulness you've produced as you've participated in the gospel with me. And now, with me and Rebecca, right? So how do I express that joy and thankfulness and love to you? Well, I'd like to think I just did. But God's grace is, le- is great, so I'll leave you with the charge that Paul leaves. Abound in love. Grow in wise love so that you might be more like Christ in his decision-making. Approve what is excellent, right? Be wise in your decision-making. Be more like Christ in his purity and in his fruit. And of course, do it all to the glory and praise of the Father. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that it teaches us. Thank you for the grace of the gospel. Thank you for passages like Philippians 1 that show us that Paul was a person who loved people. And he wrote them letters. Uh, Thank you for the fellowship that the Philippian church had with Paul. Thank you for the fellowship that Calvary's had with me and Rebecca. We praise you. We thank you. We we pray that you would be growing us in these things. uh, To your glory and to your praise. In Jesus' name, amen.